Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Preferred Walk-Ons Podcast. This is Michael McGraw, and I am here with Michael Shutt, as always. And just a preemptive apology at the beginning of this. I'm a little under the weather, so if there's a little voice scratchiness, that is why. But I don't really have to talk this week, because I can just let Shutt do all the talking, as his NC State Wolfpack are victorious over UVA 24-21. Hey, man, congrats. Hey, I don't know that I even want your congratulations. I've never felt worse about a win. It just didn't, uh, I don't know. There was something about that that just didn't quite feel right. You know, when you go into a game favored by 10 points and barely squeak out a win only because of what I can only describe as just like grade A idiocy. <laughs> on the part of UVA's football team like that unbelievable but before I get there a couple things you know you were a great person and we're spending some time with your family mm -hmm. uh, over the weekend I was lucky enough to be able to be at this game in all of its glory uh, one of the most beautiful displays of football that I've ever seen uh, of course sarcastically but first I will shout out um, some wonderful people that I met this weekend as part of my game experience. So as I, I've mentioned before, I think on here, I do work at a local bar and we started our day on Friday with a group of NC State fans that came in. They were our first customers and um, they were just delightful people. And uh, I just want to give a quick shout out to Yogi. What a great guy. And his brother, I think it was his brother or friend, unclear at this point. Uh, I think his name was Patrick much less memorable of a name than yogi great guy but the name sticks you, you, you know yogi's gonna stick out to you hmm. um they may be listening i plugged the podcast to them uh we exchanged numbers yogi sent me pictures of them enjoying the game we were talking throughout the game it was awesome that's like that's to me what college sports what sports in general can be all about right is like fans connecting and just having a good time so that was a really cool thing and, and generally, I was impressed with State's fans showing up in a big way. And I'll start with a positive for UVA fans. Student section, great job. They showed up. I mean, that part of the stadium, very full, very energetic at the beginning, at least. The rest of the fandom, I just, I don't know. I'm not impressed. And I get it. We talked about it a little bit. Like, you're 0-3 going into the game, 10-point dogs. Like, I understand. I do. But also, like, it just kind of feels like it's a Friday night. It's fun. Tickets were cheap. You know, your former quarterback and former offensive coordinator coming back in town. Like, I, I was just a little surprised. I don't mean it as much of a criticism as it is just, like, it surprised me. I know UVA fans to be passionate. I kind of thought that this would be a really rocking environment. It wasn't. It wasn't. And then where I think my real disappointment comes in is, in the second half, it starts to rain fairly lightly. Like, let me, it was not pouring and still a close game at that point. And just watching all those fans leave, it was kind of a downer. And again, I'm not even saying this as like a hater. I just feel like that team deserved more. That is a tough, resilient team. And I just, I don't know. I, I guess like it, it makes me feel for them that like, they're doing their thing and fighting this game out. And like you've got Anthony Calandria just throwing his body around the field, trying to get this thing, get a win. 
and half the fan base isn't there to see it because it started sprinkling and i just like i don't know that that part kind of bummed me out in terms of just game experience yeah i mean i can understand where you're coming from what i would say and again like i would love to have our stadium filled every single week but at the same time i also understand decisions that people make there are only so many things that you can do as a fan base to voice displeasure over what you're seeing and the main thing that gets people in a stadium is winning and so if you're not winning consistently this year specifically oh and three coming into the game with really only one game that you're expected to be favored in the rest of the year the william and mary game you know previous years we've only had a couple of years in the last like decade 15 years that have even been winning seasons or you know eight nine win seasons so it's it goes beyond this year now i totally understand where you're coming from specifically with this year's team i think they deserve our attention i think people did a really good job of coming to the jmu game specifically but as that game and this game showed it also is very difficult to watch your team lose in heartbreaking fashion repeatedly the jmu game was a game that was very winnable this game was extremely winnable, and you know maybe fans make a difference there, but it is difficult to convince people to come when they have other obligations if they're not uh, seeing repeated success or expect to see success when they go. Now, I'll go see anybody. Like I love going to college football. I would have been there if I didn't have a family obligation this past weekend, just because sure. I'll, I'll, I'll go see any two teams play just because I love college football, but I get it. I get it from fans. I, and, and don't get me wrong. Like I understand that. And like, I do get why fans maybe wouldn't want to go. And you look at the line going in and you know, no one, I don't think very many people expected it to be as close as it was. So, yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense to me. I guess the, the I am more bummed in the fans that left while it was a close game than fans who didn't come at all. That, to me, was just, I don't know. It just wasn't a good showing. We were trying to figure it out. Like, there was one one guy in particular who was seated right in front of us who was so into the game and, like, passionately yelling about everything and just... It starts raining a little bit. Actually, no, for him, it hadn't even started raining yet. It was like halftime. He looked at his phone and said, oh, it's going to start raining soon. We should get out of here. And he and I assume his wife just left. And that's hard for me to understand. And that's one person, right? It's anecdotal. But I'm telling you, like, that rain started and you could look around and you could just see throughout the stadium all the people leaving, which then left the ratio of state fans to UVA fans. Like, that really, it it honestly kind of helped the environment. Uh, Casey Concepcion scored his kind of long touchdown. That place got pretty loud because the state fans were still there. And now some of that's because, like, you know, they made a road trip. You're not going to leave for a little bit of rain when you've driven up somewhere to go to a game. And maybe it's easier for people who have season tickets and stuff. And, and, you know, it is what it is. I I don't want to belabor the point too much. When I think about the game itself, because I do want to talk about what happened in the game, I walked away thinking, like, UVA is a pretty damn good 0-4 team. (laughs) um you know i think like hang the banner baby let's go (laughs) i haven't you know just because of other games and things like that obviously i've i've watched you know a decent amount of uva this year but sitting down and seeing an entire game a game that i'm more invested in because my team is also playing that defense is legit 
I stand by my assessment of Calandria. I think, you know, he does he still make freshman mistakes? Of course he does. Like he's brand new to college football. If I saw him walking down the street, I would think he was brand new to high school football. He's a tiny dude, but I was impressed by him. And again, the toughness, the resilience of that team is incredibly impressive. You know, I walked away from that thinking like this UVA team is maybe a competent offensive line away, away from being what I'm not sure, but away from winning some games for sure. Right. I feel like if they could, you know, move the line a little bit to run. Right. They struggled in the running game. There were a few runs that they were able to kind of break, especially outside, but not being able to really have a power running game, not being able to give a quarterback time to scan the field. That's going to obviously limit your ceiling. And I just feel like in the trenches, if they can improve and it takes time to build that up, if they can improve, I think this team is is a lot closer to being competitive than I would say most people probably think. Even with the deficiencies that they currently have, you could make a reasonable case that this team could be two and two. And they were in the Maryland Mm -hmm. game for three quarters. But I mean, you lose that many points in the fourth quarter, whatever. But reasonable that they could have won the JMU game, reasonable that they could have won this game. They could be a two and two game. And I think the fan base would feel so much differently with very minimal changes. But having said that, like you pointed out, the running game because of offensive line play is very, very difficult. I mean, they they averaged, I think, 2.5 yards per carry with their running backs, which was not very good, but was almost double the production that they've been getting in their last several games. So that's bad. Calandria yeah. was really the only a person who could get any kind of scramble ability on the ground. And then there were problems with their secondary, too. I mean, the Concepcion touchdown that he had was just you know running wide open taking bad angles and then you know touchdown I thought the defense played pretty well overall considering what they had been allowing particularly on the ground they really didn't give NC State a ton on the ground like they kind of kept them bottled up they got their first interception of the year which uh, you know it's kind of crazy that it took them four games to do that and it was I think the biggest problem (laughs) it really was I that was like nowhere near the guy man but yeah I think you know, there are some things that could make this a decent team. There are building blocks there. What do we make of that compared to an 0-4 season where you've had consecutive games where the fourth quarter has just been a disaster? I mean, like, the way that they've finished in the last three games has been really, really bad. Turnovers have been way up, allowing the other team to just, like, drive down the field in crucial moments bad penalties in this game three 15-yard penalties in the last 36 seconds of the game that's the stuff that really makes you question you know what what are the causes of that so i i hear you on the like we're a really good 0-4 team i would have said you know we win these two games we might be the worst two and two team of all time but (laughs) you know some somewhere in there there's just it's really not there really aren't uh that much dividing points between those two places on the spectrum what i sort of struggle with and and i've been i would say adjacent to this camp but i'm firmly planting myself in the tony elliott believer camp and I'll, i'll defend him at this point because i think watching that game were there coaching mistakes for sure burning a timeout on a fourth and short just to still kick the field goal like there were decisions for sure that that i think were questionable But that being said, there were also 
adjustments made throughout the game that I thought were really impressive from a coaching perspective. So, for example, early in the game, if you watch and you go back and you watch like all 22 from that game, what you're going to see, especially in the passing game, is generally Aiden White, State's best corner, is on the right side of the field. And if you watch UVA's passing game, I think virtually no, like almost until the end, there was a, a DPI late and then a short pass completed late on the right side of the field. Other than that, there was nothing going on over there. And they were struggling to get some of their playmakers involved in the game, especially Malachi Fields. He often was on that side of the field and they just couldn't get the ball to him. And you saw adjustments where they started moving their playmakers and shifting things over to the other side of the field, picking on Shaheem Battle, who is not as good in coverage. Then you saw injuries in the NC State secondary already going in, depleted at safety. Then you end up with another injury at safety, um, and Bishop Fitzgerald is playing strong safety, and he's never practiced that position for NC State ever in like <laughs> in his career. And you start to see then, when you watch that happen, UVA starts taking shots in his direction. That's good coaching, right? That Those are good adjustments. Those are things that you look at, and you're you're... If you're a UVA fan trying to find signs that Tony Elliott has this team going in the right direction, I think there are things like that. And there's there's other things that, other things that you could break down, especially when you look at late in the game. Look at all those successful, you know, scrambles for Calandria when you can see what NC State's having to do is because the secondary is depleted, because the safeties are not as experienced, they're dropping linebackers more. They're not able to put the same kind of pressure on. They're not. They're definitely not able to have somebody sit as a spy on Calandria, and so that frees up room for him to run, right? So there's a lot of things there that I think look a lot better. As far as the penalties at the end, I'm not penning any of those on Tony Elliott. I'm sorry. The only one that you could argue is the leaping penalty on the field goal because you have to have your team educated on what they can and cannot do on that field goal block unit. And who knows what happens to that kick if it doesn't, the dude doesn't leap up and block. Like, I don't know. Maybe he still makes it uh, if you don't do that. But the two unsportsmanlike penalties, I don't see those as Antonio Elliott at all. Like, I've seen a lot of, you know, just discourse about, like, oh, an undisciplined team that always comes back to coaching and that's on them. Some of that, and I hate, I, <laughs> I sometimes hate this coach speak, but there's something, there, there is something to be said about teams learning how to win. And like you said, this is a team that has struggled in the fourth quarter. Well, that's not necessarily the case in this game. The fourth quarter, they put themselves in a position to win the game. Now, they also had turnovers, for sure. But making those plays to tie it up, they definitely haven't been there before, especially Calandria, right? And, like, I get it. I understand the nitpicking and thinking, like, yes, the ref probably could have held a flag on that and not thrown it when he took his helmet off. That being said, it's the rule. He did it you got to know you can't do that you know like having been on this end last year as a Panthers fan the DJ Moore thing against the Falcons where we complete this Hail Mary and he takes his helmet off I think it's a dumb penalty like who cares especially in this case it was coming off anyway but like it is the rule it you know I don't know that to me that's just kind of like that's a kid who hasn't been there who got excited and the other one was just a blatant like <laughs> yeah I mean he head headbutted him <laughs> so I mean that's yeah. definitely a penalty yeah, and you got to call the leaping thing too. I mean, that was a blatant penalty as well that may have disrupted the kick. So, I mean, you have yeah. to call that. Yeah, I think you know, I the, the last thing I'll say about UVA in this regard, it's it's tough to engage with some parts of the fan base and some of the louder people that I see online with this because 
I feel somewhere in the middle. I see a lot of people after this game that were like, I'm done. This team can never win. It's another blown situation. And then I see other people that are like, hey, the fact that we're just taking the field is great. I believe that that is true. But there is like an underlying feeling that results don't matter at all, which I don't agree with. Like we are building a new football facility that is costing millions and millions of dollars. There's an expectation for this team to be good. We are spending a lot of money to be good. Like we're not, we're not doing what Vanderbilt did and, you know, cutting, cutting funding for this. We are spending money on it. And so we should be a good team. There's no excuse for this team not to be bowl eligible at least every single season. So I find myself a little bit in between trying to figure out, I want to keep supporting the team. I'm going to support the team no matter what, but at the same time, there are some concerning things there. You know, we are through four games without a win. We have some tough games on the schedule, some winnable games on the schedule too. This weekend is one of them, perhaps. But, you know, you have to be able to put something together and give fans an actual reason to come to games, to have hope, to want to support the team, to have faith that the building blocks that you're seeing are amounting to something in the future because there have been so many long years. It's not just a blip. It has been many, many long years, decades of not getting to where we want to go. My question for you is, you kind of alluded to this at the beginning, but NC State, how are you feeling about the quality of your team given this game? Are you Mm -hmm. feeling optimistic that you managed to squeak out a win? Are you feeling pessimistic that eh, maybe we should have played better against... UConn, we should have played better against UVA. We definitely should be the better team here. Like, how, how are you feeling about your prospects going forward? I could not tell you how good we are. Honestly, like that's that's kind of my big overarching takeaway is I have no idea how good this NC State team is. I really don't. I mean, I think that there's talent. I think that this team can be better than they have shown so far you know i think that brennan armstrong brings a unique thing at quarterback where i mean that guy's a dog I, like i'll give him that I, I i think that you watch late in this game some of the plays he made with his legs and some of it was just pure determination and he'll put his shoulder down and go into somebody to get pick up some extra yard he is competitive as hell and i think he is talented I, you know i think there's a lot of young talent here you know health has been a concern so dylan mcmahon also our starting center who is by all reports of uh one of the top center prospects for the nfl draft this year um he was out for this this game that hurts an offensive line right like he's the leader of that unit like i said lots of injuries in the secondary we had injuries along the defensive line you know so there's part of it where like there are plenty of excuses there but in a game like this you shouldn't have to lean on that like i think state even with injuries if they are who we think they are this game still should have been a little bit more comfortable and so that is concerning a win's a win don't get me wrong like <laughs> this is a team that you know now has a has a big opportunity with a a home night a friday night game against louisville to make a statement and to get to four and one. And then with Marshall the next week, like this, this team could be five and one with its only loss against a Notre Dame team that looks to be, uh, you know, one of the best teams in the country, you know, when they and, have 11 people on the field. Well, sure. 
Right. But I mean, that's the thing, right? If, if they don't screw that up, let's say, for example, let's say they get 11 guys on the field and make a stop. Let's say they beat Ohio State. If I'm NC State and I managed to well, say I beat Louisville and I beat Marshall, now we're five and one with our only loss against a Notre Dame team that would assuredly be in the top five. It's still a top 10 team even losing that game. You can't feel too bad. You're winning games. No one ever said it has to be pretty. And, and I think that that's kind of where we're at now where it's a funny thing as a fan to have had some seasons in recent years, last year being one of them, where you're super confident in the team and things just don't quite go the way you expect. Well, now it almost feels like this year's setting up for me to never be confident in this team, <laughs> but have them win 10 games. Like, <laughs> And I'll take it. I'll take it. If it's ugly, that's fine. Dave Doran loves ugly football. Um, and that's a big gripe that a lot of fans have with him is he is comfortable winning that game that way. He is comfortable beating UConn 24-14 because all that matters to him is they won. Like my confidence level on a scale of one to ten with this team is probably like a six point five right now. They can get it up to an eight if they beat Louisville on Friday night. Like if they're able to just take care of business and get a nice statement win. I prefer not one that we squeak out, but just <laughs> like take care of business. Go beat Louisville. Like your three point dogs going in. Just beat them by a touchdown, even. Like something that that feels like relatively comfortable and and I'll feel good about this team. We will get to that game in a few minutes. But first, just a couple of touch points on the rest of what happened during week four. Start off with talking about Colorado for a second. They got boat raced. Finally. Yeah. Somebody boat raced Colorado. And I did think when that line came out that that was such a shocking line of three touchdowns that I was like, well, that's crazy. But then the more I thought about it, I had an article out talking to scouts and other coaches that have played Colorado so far this year. And basically everyone was in unanimous agreement that Oregon was just going to smash them and that this was the result that you were going to see. And that's what you saw. You saw a Oregon team that is pretty stinking good, first of all. I mean, I think that's my main takeaway before saying anything about Colorado. But Oregon is legit. They can win the whole thing. Uh, or at least get in into the championship game. I don't know if they're quite as good as Georgia, but but on the Colorado side of things, you could really see the cracks in their defense. Their defense really could not stop the run. They didn't really make too many mistakes offensively, but just really had a tough time stopping anything that Oregon wanted to do in the first half. I mean, Dion himself has said like they're they're not there yet. And I think this was probably a good thing for them. I mean, a better thing for them would have been to be able to beat Oregon, right? I mean, of course, that's what they would prefer. But I almost think, like, long-term for Deion Sanders' vision for this program and what he's trying to build, you could make an argument that losing like this might be better for them than, like, a close loss. I think a reality check is important. And understanding that, like, hey, yeah, so the TCU win, impressive. Nebraska, Nebraska and Colorado State are not very good football teams. And so I think that having something where you get blown out like this can be a good check before you have to play USC. Now, I don't think it's going to be good for them if they get blown out again by USC. Like, if USC comes in and does the exact same thing to them, I think this will put them in a rough spot. But yeah, I mean, I look at this and Bo Nix put on a show and that Oregon team looked damn good. 
So like, is it does this does this mean that Colorado is actually like really bad? No, I I don't think that that's true at all. I just think yeah, like, like you said, this Oregon team is among the class of the nation, right? This is like, you know, they're up there, and and time will tell how far up there they are. But I think this is a very good team, and when Bo Nix is good, we know he's good. the The whole thing that holds them back is that sometimes Bo Nix is not very good and and can be turnover prone at times and you know that version of him definitely limits them but if he plays like he did this past saturday this oregon team will be in the playoff like if that's what they're going to get from him their defense is way better than usc's defense yeah i Mm -hmm. think they're a more complete team than usc is caleb williams is obviously better than bo nix but good bo nix with the rest of that team and dan lanning you know running that thing as the coach I like this Oregon team a lot, and they proved that that they deserve to be in that playoff conversation. I mean, Colorado proved that they still got some time. Second game I wanted to talk about was the Clemson-Florida State game, which I'm very mad about because this there is never a time when I root for Clemson, ever. Mm-hmm. But I did pick them and have been saying for months that I thought Clemson was the team to beat in the ACC, and that... Florida State would struggle in this game even if they were successful in other places. And it was all set up for me to be right. They did everything that they needed to do. Late in the game, Dabo Swinney, getting all conservative with his play calling, leaves it up to a kicker who he just called off the beach a week ago to convince him to come kick for him. This is the guy that he staked his reputation on a big moment in a rivalry game makes no sense. Like, that's just an insane decision on his part to get really conservative at the end of the game. Some bad play calling, I think, also in the overtime situation. It was a third and one, and they gave the quarterback a zone read situation where he pulled it and threw it for, like, a two-yard loss rather than just, like, falling forward. Teams seem to be really having a lot of problems just, like, converting third and one, fourth and one this year. Like, they need to play more Madden. All you got to do is QB sneak this stuff. <laughs> Unstoppable. I'm begging Absolutely. people. But yeah, big win for Florida State. I mean, they're in the driver's seat now. Look, I mean, again, I think that uh, this Clemson team, I'm not saying they're bad. You know, again, I, I, I feel like I've been beating this drum every week. I, I They're not bad, but they are not Clemson teams of three, four years. You know, they're, they're the last decade really like this isn't this is not Clemson's conference anymore I'm sorry it just isn't like Florida State is the best team in the ACC they have proven it thus far right I mean like until somebody comes and takes that from them it is it's all them you know I I don't know that I believe that Duke is at that level I I don't certainly don't believe in Miami I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop with them you know Kate Klubnik looked fine in this game nothing transcendent though right and i think that that's sort of what you're looking for the way that he was talked about preseason you expected him to make some of the plays that we're used to seeing some of the clemson quarterbacks of the past make that win a game not just good enough to keep you in a game against an elite team but good enough to break a game open and those are the plays that we saw Trevor Lawrence make. Those are the plays that we saw Deshaun Watson make, Taj Boyd. I'm not seeing that with Cade Klubnik at this point in time. You know, he still needs experience. I'm not saying like 
cut him <laughs> right <laughs> but uh you know and, and quite honestly when you think about the way this team is built and where their best players are their best players are their running backs and phil Moffa and will shipley and football has changed you know like it's hard to rely on a running game 41 rushing attempts for clemson in this game averaging under four yards a carry and that's with you know Moffa had the one long uh 46 yard run so you take an explosive play out of that and suddenly that looks like an extremely pedestrian run game it's hard to win when your best players are at a position that already is at less of a premium than it used to be and they're not even really getting the production that you would expect out of them now you're you're staring at a Clemson team that's two and two overall oh and two in the conference that's weird (laughs) like when's the last (laughs) time we saw that and like you said Florida State absolutely in the driver's seat I'm feeling good about my pick for them to win the conference is there anything else you want to talk about from last week because I have a list of some crazy that went down (laughs) couple yeah there's just a couple of things that uh you know caught my eye there were just some some good games first of all that i think were a lot of fun to watch that arkansas lsu game was fun the no one wants us bowl i think as it was referred to on college game day Yeah, yeah what a great game there um washington state and oregon state also you know who's got to be one of the more stressed out coaches in the in the nation after this past week, Brian Ferentz. Yeah, he's he's uh, on my list of crazy stuff that happened because we can just go ahead and jump into that because yeah. that game. Now I will say in defense of Iowa, their main running back, I think two running backs were out, and their leading wide receiver was out. So okay. that does put them a little bit behind the eight ball. Now, having said that, this was one of the worst offensive performances of the modern era. I mean, in an era where you're allowed to throw the ball down the field, it's insane that you would only be able to get 76 total yards of offense. The play differential alone between the two teams, Iowa ran plays, they had like 30 total, some total plays in the whole game. They went punt, fumble, punt, 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 fumble, punt, fumble. That's how they went in this game against Penn State. Is that that good? is not a legitimate team. And yet, Iowa makes a bowl game every year. Like, they routinely win eight games because their defense is so good. Like, this was an insane performance. Yeah, I um, found this very difficult to watch. <laughs> and I like this Penn State team. Like, I, I don't want to lose track of that in all of this. Like, I think this Penn State team is one of the better teams in the country. I think they could feasibly win the Big Ten. But yeah. When your offense gets four first downs in an entire game, fumbles the ball six times, losing four of them. When your running game generates 20 yards on 17 carries, like you just keep going down the stat line and each line in the box score is just another like, really? They were, it was 97 to 33 total plays. 97 to 33. No team in the last five season and no other FBS team has been outsnapped by 60 plus plays. Yeah, that's that's bizarre. Like it's bizarrely bad. That's what it is. So now their scoring average is below 21 a game. So they got to generate some points. They he's going to have to if this guy wants to keep his job. They got to win four more games, which I'm sure they'll do. But then they also need they need to have some some big old offensive explosions. 
Now, the good thing is they play Michigan State uh, next week. So, and then they got Purdue. So, like, there should be an opportunity there for them to be able to score some points. But holy shit, was this bad. Like, I, to me, if I'm, well, first of all, I mean, it's a perfect explanation of the nepotism here because <laughs> if the head coach were anybody other than his father, screw the contract. After that game, I'm walking over there and I'm saying, hey, buddy, that ain't going to cut it. Bye. We'll find somebody else. There's a, a, you know, a kid who plays Madden somewhere that could probably generate more points than you are right now. Let the fans call the plays. I mean, yes. how like at this point, you know, let the let the kids up in the hospital that you're waving to pregame. Let them call some plays at this. Like anything would be it. better. I love it. Yeah. So a couple other things that I just wanted to quickly run through because I felt like this was a deranged weekend of college football. I loved it. It was great games. The games didn't always live up to expectations. A couple of them did. But some just deranged behavior happened, sure. which is why I like watching college football all day. Some people <laughs> only watch their team. I watch it just because you never know what's going to happen. So first of all, Caleb Williams, USC quarterback, yeah, got, got a ball snapped into his fellas. He sure he did. Looking. Yeah. That's just funny on its own. Yeah. That's a whole different kind of Heisman pose. <laughs> we talked about Iowa. Notre Dame played the last two snaps of the game, the most high-profile game of the day, with only 10 men at the one-yard line. Well, that just tells me you don't believe in Jesus. There were 11 out there. You just couldn't see him. <laughs> oh, man. I love the tweet I think I sent you from Reddit CFB that was like, Jesus, when I was walking, I, you know, normally I see 22 feet but this time i only saw 20 is that because you were lifting me up and it's like no we only had 10 people on the field that's because your dumbass coach only sent 10 people out there for a goal line stop with the game on the line <laughs> and he didn't want to get a penalty that was his reason he didn't want to get a penalty who cares yeah. what are you they can... gonna move the ball forward six inches i mean that that's that was my favorite like commentary on this is some i forget who it was but i saw somebody on twitter who just said literally you could get that penalty an infinite number of times and they still wouldn't score <laughs> so you might as well right they can, yeah. it's half the distance to the goal at no point does the ref say you know what we're close enough just put that thing in there touchdown right like get 11 dudes on the field and stop being a dumbass like that i, I just that's so stupid to me did you see the jmu game where there was a fake field goal that utah state scored it was uh, to the kicker. He was running up the sideline. He scored. JMU protested that he stepped out of bounds. And an assistant coach came running up with a cell phone to show the refs, hey, look, we have it here. Here's him stepping out of bounds. And the ref just absolutely went apoplectic. And it was like, no, we're not doing yeah. that. Not a good look. <laughs> not a good look for Kurt Signetti. And, uh, you know, I've said it before. I don't have positive feelings towards him because of his abandonment of Elon. But yeah, I guess you can't do this. And he really wanted to pull the Patrick Beverly, right? Like this happened in the in an NBA game a couple years ago where Pat Bev went and grabbed a reporter's camera or a uh, you know, news person's camera and brought it over to the referee to show him something instantly got attacked. This, yeah, this is just not a great not a great move. I mean, it's funny. Like 
absolutely hilarious to me that this happened. But uh, yeah, not a great look. My favorite part of this play, though, is not even all of that. It's the fact that uh, the kicker who uh, scored this touchdown, his name is Elliot Nimrod. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Now, who's the real <laughs> Nimrod in this play? Definitely Kurt Signetti. My favorite play of the whole weekend, though, it's not really a play, but my favorite thing that happened was the Trident fiasco in Texas State, Nevada, where there were reports for like an hour online that a student or a member of the band of Texas State had thrown a trident at Nevada's football team, which is kind of disturbing. <laughs> that, was, that existed for like an hour that like people were sleuthing like, I'm sorry, what? A trident had been thrown at the team? Turns out it wasn't quite like that. The turnover trident that Nevada has, someone has to explain to me why Nevada, the Wolfpack, have a trident as their turnover thing, but we'll set that aside for now. Somebody in the band stole it. They stole the trident from them. And before you like say maybe they shouldn't have done that, Texas State went on to score the next 35 points in the game. 35 <laughs> unanswered points <laughs> as this kid was being escorted out of the stadium. Clearly it works, and I think we need to see more of this. More trying to get the turnover chain. Somebody needs to try to steal Dion's Colorado throne. The dog uh, pads thing that they have at Georgia with the spikes. You got to be careful with your hands on that. You might like cut yourself, but like somebody's right. got to steal that as well. Bravo. Yeah, I um, remember seeing this on Twitter at some point during the day and just kind of did a double take and was like that. Surely that sentence that I just read wasn't real. I thought it was just like an anger man joke. You know, didn't didn't realize this was a real thing. So basically the turnover trident, because I too was like, why is this a thing? A lot of it makes sense. You know, like uh, NC State has a, a, a bone because, you know, they're wolf. They're dogs. Yeah, that's right. It's like a lot of times they have a tie there. But apparently uh, Nevada received the turnover trident. It was a gift. They went to a naval air station and uh, they went to the USS Nevada and they were given the trident, I guess. By Poseidon. Did Poseidon show up and <laughs> hand it to them? I guess I guess what it is in the U.S. Navy that there's something about three years and you get a trident. And I, I don't know the full story, but that's what they do with it. They have it for three years the Nevada football one, the turnover tried it. They engrave every takeaway onto it. It's metal. And then they present it uh, to quote some special benefactor and then start a new one. So I assume some booster gets the trident, but yeah, I don't really totally, that doesn't give you a ton of clarity on it, but I just think that like everyone should bring tridents to football games. And my favorite tweet about this was like, sure. The NFL may be better at football, but it doesn't have this. Like, yes. <laughs> this is amazing. Just the idea that there was a trident involved in any way, no matter what the reality of the story was. All right. We are now joined by Brian Burnsed, repeat guest on the show. Brian, for those of you who are fans of our program, will know that he is a Sports Illustrated contributing writer. He also worked for the NCAA. Great writer. Also a big 
Braves Falcons fan, which we won't hold against him here in this I setting. Go Braves. Yeah. Well, there half, you go. Half of them will hold against you, but yeah, that part of it's fine. The Falcons part, maybe not so much, but so Brian, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. So we wanted to have Brian on. Brian wrote an article that appeared in the September 13th Sports Illustrated. It's actually the cover article, and it details the story of Julian Lewis, who is now the, at age 15, the youngest football player to be featured on the cover of Sports Illustrated, which is really cool. And so the article talks about NIL stuff and fame and what it's like to be a kid and a highly recruited quarterback. This kid is now going to be going to USC. So we wanted to talk uh, to Brian about the, kind of the situation. First up, what led you to write this story? What got you connected to writing about Julian? So it, like a lot of good magazine stories, it kind of started in a roundabout way. So my editor and I were on a story idea call. We'll have those from time to time. And we both simultaneously brought, without without realizing it, brought the same idea to each other, which was all the baby Gronk stuff was going on. If you remember that, when it was at its, its Risen up peak. Uh, Livy. Yes, exactly. Uh, and we were trying to decipher what all that meant. But that triggered a conversation about NIL creeping into youth sports and ooh, this, where, this is kind of a brave new world and it looks kind of creepy and I don't know if we love where this is going. Let's see if we can maybe use this as a means of exploring NIL and, and youth sports. And that's kind of where it started started talking to some NIL consultants, experts about has it trickled down to the youth space. And simultaneous to that, uh, I had trouble breaking into the baby Gronk sphere, I think probably because I don't have uh, hundreds of thousands of Instagram followers. So I'm going to work on that for next time. Um, but as that's happening, Julian Lewis's camp, he has a, he has a 15-year-old high school star, he has a camp, uh, which is remarkable, uh, had, had already reached out. I think via the documentary team that had been working with him uh, to SI to gauge our interest in doing a piece on him. As a standalone, they weren't sure, but once we, I'd started reporting this broader NIL and youth, and that evolved to NIL in high school, we thought, oh, this is the perfect vehicle for that story. We can obviously tell Julian's story, but use him as a mechanism, as a, as a means to explore what's NIL in the high school space. And what's this look like? How's it manifesting? It's changing every day. Um, so yeah, it wasn't the intent, oh, let's go do a Julian Lewis piece, but that's uh, how it evolved and how it came about. And he wanted to be in a wonderful uh, subject to explore, uh, to, to dig into that uh, subject matter. One of the things that I really like about this piece is I think so many NIL stories are framed from the fan perspective or the college perspective. And it's like, how can Miami get these great recruits or which programs like Texas A&M are poised to clean up or do better, do worse. But this is really like the human side of things, particularly at a high school level like this kid is 15 and is navigating things that are just unimaginable to me like thinking back to my teenage years that the uh, amount of fame eyes on him all the time you mentioned the camp that he has he's got this you know tv show that's being recorded of him what is your sense of what nil is doing to Julian, like I, I get the sense reading the story that he's like a very level-headed kid. That he is maybe the best-case scenario of being able to handle the amount of scrutiny that's out there. But what are you seeing from maybe potentially other athletes, you know, is that maybe aren't handling it the same way? Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right. I think he is kind of the best-case scenario for something like this. As strange as it is, and as unmooring as it, as we might find it, 
I think his dad, while his dad has been out there kind of propelling him down this path, he's also been a good shield simultaneously. He's almost clearing the way for him as they go, uh, which is not always going to be the case. And when we started reporting the piece, we didn't, you know, we weren't sure, is this going to be, is this going to lean a little more Marinovich or is this guy going to be a little more grounded? And, and it wound up being the latter. And as of now, the tension in the piece and the tension with Julian is that there's a lot of offers, six figures of offers coming his way, but he can't cast in yet because NIL is not allowed in the state of Georgia. It's one of 20 states where high school athletes cannot receive NIL payments yet. So that's being taken up uh, in October um, by their state high school association. It's likely going to flip, kind of led by, frankly, Julian and, and his family's attorney kind of uh, lobbying for that. Um, so it's to a degree a distraction, but his dad and then that attorney they're working with have been good shields for that. Um, and then when and if he can start cashing in here in the, in the coming months. I think they're going to continue to be that filter and they're going to try to keep football first and not let it encroach too much upon his time. Now that's a heck of a balancing act, right? Because once you start getting big deals dangled in front of you, how do your priorities shift? How does your focus shift? Especially when you're 15, I can't imagine. You know, I, I was a, when I was 15, I was a mediocre JV athlete. If I hit a few threes in the game, I thought I was, you know, big man on campus the next week at, at school. And this guy's on the cover of Sports Illustrated and setting records. I, and he is level-headed, uh, which you would not expect uh, for someone who's done what he's done and is getting the sort of acclaim he is. So, yes, best-case scenario there for now, and we'll see how it evolves. But, yeah, I do think that there is, on the flip side of that coin, there is considerable risk if you don't have that sort of solid family uh, component, solid structure around you, however that manifests. People could take advantage. You could get distracted. You could get pulled in a bunch of different directions. And, yes, maybe it's a windfall in the near term for the kid and the family and and that's wonderful. I mean, I, I think that's great. I hope more and more families and kids get to cash in that otherwise might not have. I think that's a net positive, but it also can be, you know, it could be a distraction. It could pull someone who's going to be on that path to being a college star, maybe even being a pro star. Maybe they get caught up in the social media side of it, devoting too much time to that or spending too much time recording ads and doing branding stuff. And they, they fall off and don't live up to potential. And you, you've, we've seen some kids relocate. Uh, and that can rate, you know, on promises of riches to states where that's allowed, uh, but they run into eligibility issues or they put their trust in the wrong folks and they wind up not being able to cash in the way they were promised. So without uh, proper guidance in your corner, it, could, it can be risky. Um, but again, I think broadly, we'll see it as a net positive for, for some young athletes and families to be able to uh, avail themselves of financial opportunities that didn't exist in the past. So I couldn't help, you know, in reading this, I can't help but be a little bit cynical. You know, you see some of these stories about, I think on the basketball side of things, kids like Mikey Williams, Seventh Woods, like there's these kids that we hear about when they're young and they start to get all this attention. And those, those stories were kind of, you know, they were pre-NIL. This was like, you know, but, but sort of the beginning of social media building up these athletes and Throughout the story, you know, the, both Julian and his dad are, are they, they say this, you know, keeping the main thing, the main thing. And they're about this. I guess, like, how much does that seem to really be happening? Does, does it, as you kind of learn more about this kid, is there concern, like, concern that maybe that slips away? Because here we are talking about him, right? So it's like, how much, you know, the main thing may be the main thing when it's happening, right? During a football game. But, like, at the same time, I'm sitting here reading a Sports Illustrated cover story about a 15-year-old, and that always raises a red flag in my brain of just kind of, is is there focus, or are we still kind of like, even while trying to say we're focused on the sport, have our have our eyes over here sort of in this like, yeah, but 
there's this world too. Does that concern you at all about Julian specifically or, or other kids like him? Yeah, I think bro- speaking uh, about Julian or, or even more broadly, I think that that tension applies to, to anyone in that circumstance. And I think you articulated it well. I mean, that's that's why that kicker anecdote, uh, I, was in, I was in Julian's room interviewing him uh, and kind of unprompted out of the blue, he pulled up that, that car, that Mercedes that's in the, the kicker anecdote, this, uh, you know, six figure, really, really slick little sports car that he's like, yeah, you know, like I, I care about my football training. Uh, you know, he, he does all that, but he can't help every now and then at 2 a.m. peeking at this car that if he lived in California might already be his, or if this Georgia law passes, maybe that's his next year. Or when he gets to college, most definitely he'd be able to afford it. So he's still a kid, right? Like we, and, and any of us at any age, if, if we knew that was within grasp, it'd be hard to ignore those. You can call them distractions. You can call them rewards. Um, but they're, it's not football, right? It's the ancillary stuff. Uh, and so that's kind of why I liked framing kind of in the, in the lead of here are the tensions and here's what's coming. And then that kicker section about the car, because I wanted to leave that a bit open-ended because it, it's impossible for me to judge, you know, having spent a weekend with him and his family, how it'll turn out. But it's an unavoidable, unmistakable notion that those distractions are on the way, are coming faster than they might have pre-NIL era. Still, I think it's a benefit for him and his family. But there are, there is, this is coming. This is new. How do you handle it? How does it change your path? We'll, we'll see. You know, that's kind of where we have to leave it. One of the things that's most difficult from my perspective is we have this Supreme Court case that happens in 2021. And then that opens the door for everybody to kind of do their own thing. And states have just plowed forward with various levels of NIL laws, many of which directly contradict what the NCAA has put forward as their rules. So you have a situation now where Congress is like lobbying or being lobbied by the NCAA to come in and step in and fix this, where they're really not in a situation where the NCAA feels like they can do anything about it. How do you see this developing? Is it just going to continue to be the Wild West? Are we headed towards just a series of court cases where this something gets leveled across the country? Or like, will Congress eventually step in and try to fix this? How do you see this playing out? So I, I think the NCAA saw it when the Alston case happened, and it was actually related to something tangential to NIL, but sent a signal, hey, NCAA, we're going to, NIL will be struck down if, you know, if we, if this tries to uh, go down in court. So the NCAA changed their rules like the same week on NIL, opened it up, states set their rules, um, and off we went. And I think from there, what we're seeing is NCAA realizing, okay, we're not going to be able to win this in the courts. That's been, that's been proven. So please, Congress, come in, help us regulate, because we we're not going to have the, the power to without some sort of federal law because each state does it slightly differently. Like I said, there's still 20 that don't have it, but I, I think that number is going to dwindle by the day. Um, it just, it just, it would be, I'd be hard pressed to see states clinging on to, no, we're not going to allow kids to profit when every state they border with, kids are cashing in, kids like Julian can cash in, like that's, the dominoes will keep falling. Uh, I did ask uh, a lot of the NIL consultants, whole cottage industry has sprung up of these people that come in and, you know, they consult for brands, they consult for young athletes like Julian and his family, they kind of work both sides of that, those equations. They, they serve as marketplaces, connecting them. Entirely new Wild West sort of industry that people are trying to wrap their heads around. And I talked with some people that have talked with legislators to get a temperature on how things are going. And I think the general sentiment is federally that it's going to be really slow or next to impossible. There have been, I think, four or five bills put forward in the House and the Senate uh, that just they just don't gain steam. I mean, as bifurcated as things are right now nationally on every, every issue, 
this is one where we have had some, there've been some bipartisan talk, but it's just such a low priority relative to everything else that's going on. And right now, so, so little gets done federally of, of merit that the general sentiment, at least for now in the near term, uh, is that uh, even though they're lobbying for this sort of change in Congress, I don't think it's coming anytime soon. I think it's going to be state by state forever. And then the courts, there was another court decision earlier this week that made pretty clear that you know anything related to limitations regarding NIL are going to get there. That's not going to be a winning argument for the NTA in the, in, in the, the court of law. So that's why they've gone to the federal government. But I don't know if that route's going to going to behoove them at all. You know, thinking that as we're zooming out and kind of looking at the the broad NIL issue, it sort of feels to me, and, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, with the combination of NIL, sort of the way realignment has is shaking out i guess it's hard to like ever talk about that as it's something that has happened because it is always happening we are all being realigned constantly with with those things with conversations around conferences and colleges treating athletes as employees this has all felt to me like kind of the impending doom of the ncaa it it just kind of feels that the ncaa does not have the tools um, the teeth behind it to enforce regulations to make things consistent in a way where there's a level playing field. I guess my question for you is how do you see this, whether it's NIL, whether it's any of the other things I mentioned, impacting the long term health, the future of the NCAA as an organization, as a governing body for college sports? Do you think they're in trouble in terms of being that organization that, that centrally governs all of this? Yeah, so I think we've seen it uh, in my time there, and, and certainly since I've left three, four years ago, when I, was, I used to write for their magazine and website and was, was plugged in and, and some of these developments. And certainly it's evolved quite a bit since I've left, but I've kept my kept my eye on it, certainly in reporting something like this. Um, I mean, I do think that you're already seeing that power shift to the conferences, at least for when we think of NCAA, we think, you know, men's and women's basketball, football, you know, things like that, like that. That uh, is becoming decentralized, going more to the conferences, maybe only a couple conferences here that are going to they're going to be able to pull the strings a little bit more of the NCAA itself. Now, the NCAA more broadly, it does. I mean, it has a ton of utility in some, in grant programs and running all the I mean, there's I lost count, but there's 80 something other championships beyond the ones we're already talking about. So there's a huge amount of utility there as far as like running championships. They do, you know, infractions and enforcement. That's a complicated issue, a contentious issue, whether or not they're going to lose their teeth there, we'll see. But certainly when it comes to oversight of the big, big sports, when we think of college sports, I mean, that that's slipping away. That's why all this, this reshuffling is happening. That's why the everything's consolidating around a few big conferences. I mean, that's where the power is. And I, I, w- I would see more rulemaking, eligibility stuff, like shifting to the conferences or whatever this new entity is built around big time football. I don't know what shape that takes within the next five years, but it certainly seems like it's going to be very, very different within the near term. So I do think they're going to lose their grip over some of that. Um, and it'll be focused more on the the other sports and some of, a lot of the other functions that, you know, for whatever well-deserved flack the NCAA takes, they do do a lot of good within college sports to, you know, help out with, like I said, grant programs, things like that. There are a lot of things people don't read about that it does well and should probably continue doing. But as far as the NCAA that we know in the headlines, coming in with eligibility decisions, et cetera, trying to limit compensation, et cetera, losing in the court, that sort of stuff. That's where they're going to lose power and lose their grip. I think that's, it, that's been happening for 10, 15 years, and, and, and it's only going to accelerate with those big-time sports and big-time decisions, sure. One of the other things that your article talks about that's not exactly related to NIL, but 
I think is very relevant in this situation and maybe just increasingly in all of our lives is the role of social media. And this is something that all of us are having to navigate and with varying levels of success, I would say. And, you know, just as a fan, I know what fans were like right after the Virginia loss against NC State the other day, just about a, a football game for a program that's 0-4, just the things that get said online. Here's a 15-year-old who's having to navigate this. And, you know, at the same time, it's like very important for brand building. It's important for his long-term financial success to be successful on social media. But you also outlined some of the stuff that were like fake accounts that he's having to navigate with people spreading you know, lies, rumors about him. How do you see social media? I mean, it's, it's not going away, but how do you see that like balancing act of the, the need for it for these kids that need to be able to build up their brands? But at the same time, just like, I don't think it's controversial to say that there is a, a cesspool waiting on the other side of it as well. No doubt. And that's something we tried to explore in the piece. I talked to a, uh, a media psychologist. I didn't know there was such a thing, but there is to, to kind of jump right into those, those issues. You hit the nail on the head. And I do think it's, it's quite a, a tightrope act um, because you're right. You do need to invest a lot of time and energy into building that social media brand. And it has to be, it really needs to be authentic. It needs to be the, the young athlete doing it for it to have that genuine voice. Like you can tell when it's a team putting out a post as opposed to oh, the kid's actually doing it, right? Like it just, there's a difference between the kind of corporate scene you might get or like trying to act cool, but you can see through it versus like, oh no, this is actually Julian posting this and it's authentic. So they do need to invest that sort of time to build their brands because that's where all the, the deals are all going to come through social media. And the flip side of that coin is, yes, that cesspool that is very real and the risks are, 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 are major there. So it just, it comes down to being able to filter stuff out. And in the case of a 15-year-old, you know, like you said, there's fake accounts inventing stuff about who he's dating and posting pictures that take stuff out of context. And it's the sort of kind of high school rumor mill thing that we all lived through. And, we, and you know, we all went through versions of that. Um, but like Julian said, you know, normally it's just like in the halls of high school. That's part of growing up. You have to learn to deal with that and gossip and, you know, let it roll off your back. But when it's the whole country or the whole recruiting base in the Southeast or whatever it might be weighing in on this online, that's a lot to handle, right? Like we're not we're not meant to have that level of scrutiny. I don't care how old you are, but when you're 15 and you're in those formative years, that could really be damaging. And that's what the the child the, or the uh, media psychologist said that it's just really important that you try not to derive too much self worth from it. Good luck there. That's really hard because you get addicted to the likes and and then any negative negativity. Good luck filtering that out, right? Like there may be a hundred glowing oh congrats Julian posts after a great game, and then it's that one negative one. Same with me. If I write if I write a big piece, it's that one negative one that'll stick with me, right? Like I, I, all the good jobs, they kind of fade away, and you remember that criticism. I think that's just how we're wired, and, and social media is, uh, really amplifies that. Um, and so that I do think that that's where we're going to see as this creeps down into the high school level. It's already starting, and it's only going to explode from here as more states allow it. I think that's where we're going to see the biggest issues is almost in like teenage childhood development and psychology. Uh, and okay, I feel compelled to spend my time in the social media ecosystem to build my brand, to prepare me uh, to be a quarterback and all that entails at the next level. But there's a, there's a kind of a nasty byproduct of that. And Julian's, I think he's handled it well, but he, you know, he admitted he was forthright. Like, no, that, that sucked. Like that was, that was not fun. And he's going to, it's only going to intensify, right? Like he, he just got on our, that was a unique case that he's on the cover of SI. 
but he's going to become more famous as, as he gets into junior and senior year and breaks more records and gets close to USC. There's just going to be more and more of this coming. And how do you filter that out? That's got to, that's, that's, that's really, that's much easier said than done. One of the things that stuck out to me along those lines is talking about the state championship game and kind of struggling through some of that and, you know, him struggling with how the game's going and, and, but you've got this documentary crew and, and, I can't imagine. Like I can't imagine now as a 31-year-old uh dealing with that much less at 15 and I think you know when it comes to a, a teenager like that dealing with that one of the big things is going to be the parents, right? And so talking about his dad through the the course of the story, you know, I felt like I was reading it I kept waiting for for him to go full like Lavar Ball and just like waiting for that turn. And it it feels like Julian has the advantage of having a dad who's really got the, the, you know, a good perspective on what's important here, you know, not like immediately moving him to another state so they can go ahead and start profiting. You know, um, he definitely clearly has like that in mind in terms of long-term, you know, benefit. But did you get the sense just for your time, it, it seems like it's what's come through in the article that this is you know, as far as a guardian for Julian, someone who is really like shepherding him through this the right way. That, that's how it came across. Like I said, I kept waiting for the LeVar ball turn and it never seemed to come. Is that kind of your perspective on it as well? That his dad is really, you know, you know, shielding him and getting him ready for long-term success rather than just let's cash in on this as soon as we can. Yeah. A hundred. I, I mean, I, frankly, I was waiting for that turn too. Right. I mean, that's part of why you, you, you go report one of these and you know, you want to tell a true and honest story and someone who's that driven and has that sort of vision for their kid. Usually there's kind of some, there's some maybe ugly or unseemly byproduct as part of that drive and part of that success. And that didn't ever really reveal itself. I mean, I, I think it's, it's a wholly unique situation that someone could kind of carve that path and be that focused and, and kind of tug their kid along to start. And then, but then just kind of hand the keys over to the kid and say, okay, I've set you up and I can keep clearing the path for you, but it's on you now. And I'm going to be hands off on, you know, by the time he's about 10, they mutually decided, like, it's not good that I'm your coach and your dad, like it's carrying into the household. Let's stop doing that. Like any of these other people with those sorts of high aspirations, like you, like you mentioned, like that's not going to happen. The dad's going to be overzealous and it's going to just, you know, create a rift in the relationship. It's going to go bad. And they recognize that early uh, and kudos, kudos to the dad, kudos to TC for, for doing that and taking that step back while still being hands on in other ways and protective in other ways particularly as, as money and fame get involved, you know, the HBO documentary crew doesn't just show up out of thin air, right? Like that takes some ambition and some greasing the wheels and some trying to get the name out there. But even in courting that sort of attention, which could be perilous and could be dangerous, they do it with reasonable enough boundaries, you know, but it's, it's still a very strange circumstance, right? To have a camera crew fall on your own when you're 15, but it's, I suppose, the healthiest version of that, if that makes sense, like, which is, Again, I've said tightrope walk a few times here, but that's really what it feels like. It's like, we know we need to get his brand up. It'll help him recruiting. It'll help him cash in on NIL either in high school or when he sets foot on a campus. We need to do this, but we also need him to be able to go to his room every day after practice and not think about football and not have an overzealous dad and not have a camera in his face 24-7. And they've struck that right balance. But I would wager that that is going to be the exception to the rule rather than the rule for most of these kids. One of the last things that I was thinking about, we're, we're both the high school basketball coaches and we coach on the AAU circuit as well. And oh, gosh. I know <laughs> that can be a, it's a whole other side episode. But 
you know, you, you talk about in the story how Julian worked with a quarterback whisperer, basically, that had been training Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields as well. And it seems like we're in a situation, it, it's always a difficult balance for us as well, where we're trying to give athletes opportunities. These are high school kids. That means that they're just kids in general where they should be able to try out different sports and try new things and see whether there are skills that they didn't know they had or camaraderie of being part of a team or just being in shape, any of those good things that we want. But at the same time, as a country, we also value the ability to get high-level recruits to play at college, to get them to the pro, and we're already mapping out their careers. And I'm guilty of this too. I mean, I obsessively follow high school recruiting as well, which you know is crazy to think about the amount of time that I've done that. But is there any kind of like medium way to get past this? Like it, it, I've, it feels unhealthy. It feels unhealthy as a country that we spend this amount of time focused on high school kids. But at the same time, it's also an opportunity. This kid is valued by a lot of people. He's going to likely be a top quarterback at USC, one of the biggest programs in the country, maybe a pro quarterback. Just the ability for him to make money seems like it's his right with the amount of work that he's put in. But at the same time, it's also just like, ugh. like just the whole thing makes me feel just really gross and uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, the, this has been discussed for decade plus now. I mean, I think youth sports, as you you guys are living and coaching in it, relative to maybe when we were coming up and playing. I mean, I played AAU, I played rec league in my town. And even then it was very different. It wasn't, oh, if you want to be good or, you know, have a look, you have to be on a travel team. You have to align yourself with elite coaches. You could just kind of go play for your high school team and maybe play AAU in the off season and, and like enjoy it. And maybe if you're talented enough, you'll get a shot somewhere. And that was kind of par for the course. And it's so, so different now across pretty much every sport, all the specialization, money, time invested. Uh, it, it does feel icky, kind of like you said. Now, the flip side of that, I think we will see more people, even though coaches, physicians, et cetera, say, hey, don't specialize. Like you'll actually be a better athlete if you play a, a, a litany of sports uh, and you don't just focus on one repetitive motion or one repetitive task. I do think that the rewards might come a little quicker and it might, in kind of a strange way, we're going to start to see some of that maybe frowned upon behavior and that hardcore specialization yield quicker dividends because right now people are doing it. And in the last 10 years, people have been doing that. Oh gosh, I hope that they get a scholarship or maybe they'll go pro. And that's kind of where the rewards were. Well now, and TC said this to me, it's, you know, just from the parents' point of view, it's very interesting the way this is flipped. Like if you're in a state like Georgia where there's no NIL money, okay, all the specialization, you can't cash in until, but now it's college, right? Like he's going to be a millionaire the second he steps foot on campus at USC or wherever he chose to go. And that's a different reality than back in back, you know, five years ago when it's you do all that and then you have to go through college and still develop and not get hurt and hopefully you make the pros. The payoff is quicker now. And you know, TC even framed it as we're basically good. If he makes it to college, you know, really hope he makes the league, all that. But but call you know, making making the college campus, that's the life changer right away, right there. Um, that's the differentiator. And then in states where or even in Georgia soon, where NIL is allowed in high school suddenly that investment, that specialization is going to have a quicker monetary payoff than it would have otherwise and much, much faster. So I guess that's that's a nice flip side of the coin for the the kind of icky specialization, hyper-competitive travel team stuff. Like there's, it's not just all sinking money into these coaches and programs. Like there, there might be a more tangible reward faster. 
but I do worry that that might incentivize more specialization quicker to chase that quick buck rather than the more holistic athlete athlete approach. Like that's what Nick Saban has said forever. He much prefers athletes that played two or three sports in high school because they're more well-rounded and more adaptable and tend to do better in the long term. Um, but for something like quarterback or kicker or, you know, you name your sport, it probably, there probably does, is a certain cutoff where you kind of have to pour all your time and energy in, into it to, uh, to flourish. Um, so quicker payoff now, but I, I, I do wish just, you know, looking at as a sports fan and as someone who may have a kid one day and would want them to be an athlete, I, the, the thought of having to have the kid on a travel baseball team for 10 years and go around the Southeast, that just, ugh, that sounds terrible to me. So I've got one last quick question and it kind of has gone into it. it's quick, but maybe not simple. I think through all this, every time I read a story like this, I think back to high school sports and it was fun. And I think about coaching and all the stuff that we talk about and we get stressed out about stuff. But at the end of the day, we want it to be a fun experience. And I get worried with NIL stuff making its way to high school that this becomes a business and loses some of the you know childhood fun and and that kind of that aspect of it so i guess my really simple but not simple question is in talking with julian lewis is he happy is he having fun like is your impression that he's enjoying you know this journey that he's on or is there concern that it's becoming work which it kind of takes that joy out of it that's a great question. And that's, I was really curious about that diving into the reporting. And I, I think broadly he is happy, but I don't think it's kind of that pure unabashed joy you might have from, Oh, I'm just good at my high school and it's the sport and the, the crowd cheered for me. And I get to walk around the halls as a big man on campus the next day, you know, the next week, because like we said in the piece in that first scene where not only do you have to be good at setting the records and throwing the ball, but it's how do you handle the media questions? How do you handle being a plan on ESPN and all the things that come with it? Like, his training at being a quarterback is not just about getting the ball out quick to the right guy. It's about having someone like me coming in, coming into your home and interview you for an hour. And you sound like Joe Burrow, like you're polished and can drop a joke when you need to, and can like quickly build rapport with this grown reporter who's done a bunch of big stories and you're handling yourself like a pro, like that's training. Like he hasn't had formal media training, but it's like the package of Julian Lewis part of that that there, he's had some sort of coaching or you know people have helped him get there where he carries himself like a 30 year old and so i just think inherently that's going to rob some of that joy i think he still loves going out and playing but i think because he's got to have this other side of it the equation of being a quarterback in his head the, the dealing with with people like me dealing with the camera crew etc like that that has to diminish it right or affect it in some way right it's it's, it's less pure uh, maybe i'm making a supposition but that that was my impression that Yes, it's fun. Yes, he's thrilled. He's happy to do it. But there is that extra 20% of stuff where it is kind of a job, right? Where you're having to do the extra stuff and it, and it changes it. It, it robs it up to, to a degree of some of the purity. But would you trade that 20% that I'm talking about for a million dollars next year? Sure. I think we all would, right? So that, I guess that's a fair trade-off. Well, last time you were on the show, Brian, we implored you to write something more positive, more uplifting. And this, I, I have to say, I do find this more uplifting than some of your other stories about concussions and CTE and players dying. So definitely, like, we've made progress, but still a little bit depressing. But hey, we'll take what we can get. I forgot to mention, yeah, in that 
story I did a call with my editor. I was like, hey, Michael and Michael said we need to get a little more chipper here. So like, let's go baby Gronk. Let's risk people up. Things like that. That's, I mean, that's, right. that's really what that's right. is. So credit, credit goes to both of you. Thanks. Well, yeah, I, I'm looking for those pie. credits in Sports Illustrated then. I want to see the like... <laughs> Uh, Brian, we really appreciate uh, you being on the show. I encourage everybody to go read the article. It is the cover story on Sports Illustrated's money issue. came out uh, September 13th. Uh, Brian Burnsed, you can find him on X at Brian Burnsed. Anything else you need to plug? That was it. I mean, uh, I'm semi-active on Twitter slash X, uh, and I'll have a new article coming out, I'm sure, in three to four months. I'm slow. So maybe 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 the next will be even more uplifting and we can talk about it. Sounds good. Well, always Can't welcome wait. on the show. Love chatting with you. All right. Thanks, thanks man. Appreciate it. All right. Let's look ahead. Week five coming up. Not as many games this weekend. Hope you enjoyed last weekend. This weekend will be a little bit tighter fewer games got to enjoy them as hard as you can so let's start with the acc you alluded to this game earlier on the show friday night seven o'clock espn louisville 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 is a three-point favorite traveling to nc state louisville played well last week after we talked some stuff about jack Plummer. he showed up and played pretty well but they have a really easy schedule. I think it's easy to say that Louisville has not actually performed anything that's worth caring about at this point. 112th in the Sagarin ratings. My question for this game is about the secondary and those injuries that we talked about earlier, the safeties that are out. You have good edge corners, but like a nickel corner there, that's something UVA found an advantage on. I worry about that for NC State, but I'm going to take the Wolfpack here just because it's a home game on a Friday, and I don't think Louisville has actually played anybody yet. I feel decent about this game. The at- so atmosphere, I think, is going to play a major part in this. Like, night games at Carter-Finley, State tends to play well. Just is what it is. I think that that's hard to... It doesn't really matter who the opponent is, usually. It doesn't matter kind of what we've been doing. I think that, honestly, a lot of them tend to go better as underdogs. Right. So recent examples, thinking about the Thursday night game a few years back against Lamar Jackson's Louisville Cardinals, um, able to win that game. Go back to when I was in college and one of those Florida State teams that was at the time ranked number two in the country, I believe. And uh, that was back in the, the Mike Glennon days, a little walk off touchdown at the end there. So, you know, just thinking through like, there's obviously other examples. Those just pop in my head as, as high-profile night games. These tend to go fairly well. I think you've got some young players whose confidence has been built up uh, by making plays over the last couple of games. So the VMI game, big confidence builder for kind of the whole team. Obviously, the UVA game as a team didn't maybe didn't go the way that they wanted it to. But you've got you know players like... Uh, we talked about him earlier, Casey Concepcion, who I am a huge believer in. I believe he will be one of, if not the best receiver in the conference um, at some point. Maybe not this year, but um, he's he's trending in that direction. The secondary does concern me too, but there's some players that got some chances to play, and that always helps. Um, hopefully, some of those injuries, some guys come back. So 
I like the pack here, but it is going to be a struggle. Let's move to Saturday noon on ABC. Clemson again getting the noon slot, the coveted noon spot. Traveling to Syracuse. Since 2016, Syracuse has beaten the spread five out of the last seven times against Clemson. The under has hit six out of seven times, including last year's uh, very close Clemson victory, 27-21, in South Carolina. As good as the Orange have looked, I really feel like this game is all about Clemson. What is their state of mind after starting 0-2, after losing a a very winnable game against Florida State? Are they buying what Dabo's selling? bouncing back as six and a half point favorites or are they going to like sulk about it and like let it bleed over into multiple games because i think syracuse is coming syracuse is playing pretty good football right now garrett schrader is one of the best quarterbacks in the acc that nobody talks about i am tempted to take syracuse here but i think i will stick with clemson i think this this game is a great teaser candidate for this Mm. week if you're looking to buy some points somewhere yeah, I mean, I don't know. Weird shit happens in the dome, right? I mean, that's kind of the the thing that you could lean on. If this were in Clemson, I'd be like, oh, no problem. Clemson's going to bounce back. But with this being up at Syracuse, I'm a little nervous for Clemson. That being said, I'm not a huge Syracuse believer yet. I feel the same way about them that you kind of feel about Louisville, where I don't really feel like they've played anybody. To, to like really have a good sense of how good they are, right? I mean, you kind of look at early season wins against Colgate, Western Michigan, Purdue, Army. What does that really mean for a team? So, sure, Garrett Schroeder looks good. This team is 4-0. and But, like, have they played anybody that serves as a good measuring stick? That's a pretty big jump from those four teams to Clemson. So, yeah, if the, if the line were a little bigger – I'd like Syracuse to cover, but I I see this as a probably 10, at least 10 point win for Clemson. Saturday at two o'clock, CW game of the week. Let's go. CW UVA. stands for can't watch, by the way. I mean, I'll be able to watch because I yeah. am an adult that has cable. Okay. Not an endorsement. Boomer. Not until you pay us, but Virginia traveling to Boston College. Boston College proved that they can play in a game that is not close by getting boat raced by Louisville last week. So now that that has been broken, we've got ourselves a game here. I think this is Virginia's best chance to win an ACC game this year. The crowd won't really be that much of a factor. Thomas Castellanos is really good. He can run around, and I think that is like the entire game plan for UVA is to keep him bottled up in the pocket, make him throw, because he does try to do like Bo Jackson Tecmo Bowl in the backfield. So they got to yeah. not let him do that. I'm going to pick UVA. Why not? We're bit, we've been so close. <laughs> Finally break through in this one. I actually am going to go the other direction on this one. I, I don't know. Right now, like as of Monday, right? I, I'm seeing this as a letdown for UVA. I think, you know, I don't know. I I just kind of feel like this team has been super tough and resilient and has fought through so much. And at just a certain point, you got to think it's exhausting. And and there's going to be this this just sets up to be a weird game. It's a weird time slot. You know, Boston College always feels like a weird opponent. And, And I just I don't know. I worry here that that UVA slips a little bit and has 
a pretty bad performance um, with an opportunity then to bounce back at home against William and Mary. I kind of see that as their bounce back against, you know, like you said, probably the the only game the rest of the year they'll be favored. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think it'll be competitive. I definitely think this will be a, another BC close one. But I just I, I worry that UVA won't be able to do it here. Bad. Don't need that negativity in my life. I'm sorry, on. I don't want that to be the case. I hope they win. <laughs> Saturday, 3.30 on the ACC Network. Bowling Green is going to Georgia Tech. Big win for Georgia Tech last week at Wake Forest, as predicted here on this show. Bowling Green lost by 25 to Michigan, but then lost a 31 to Ohio. So is Ohio better than Michigan? Yes. I think we can definitively say Ohio is better than Michigan. The real Ohio State University. I think Georgia Tech (laughs) will win by a lot. Yeah, I think this Georgia Tech team is very, very good, and it won't matter if they're good or not because it's Bowling Green and is not a good team. So, like, this is a good chance for Georgia Tech to continue to build some confidence. It's a good chance for Georgia Tech to sort of get some things together because um, while I think they're a good team, right? I mean, they they're only of the that win against Wake was great, but their only other win was against South Carolina State and. You know, they got to figure out a way to put it together, right? And I think that's kind of going to be the story. I think we talked about this preseason. This is going to be the story with Georgia Tech all year. Is there's going to be games that they win and you're like, damn, go Jackets. And there's going to be games that you look at them and you're like, oh, okay, never mind. I remember why we weren't paying attention to them before. But I think this is, this is a good kind of get right game to set them up for a big matchup against Miami the following week. Nobody is talking about the fact that Haynes King is the quarterback and the running back's name is Jamal Haynes, spelled exactly the same. That's just, you know, you're right. No one is talking about that. Maybe people should be talking about it. Now you are. I am. I am. am. I'm going to lead the charge. (laughs) Saturday, 730, number 11, Notre Dame, five and a half point favorites traveling to Durham against number 17, Duke. College game day is there. Hey, did anybody you know predict that at all? I believe I had that. <laughs> Love it. My Duke friend started pestering me because Duke had never hosted game day. UVA still hasn't hosted game day. One of six programs in Power Five conferences not to host. No big deal. We don't need them. But anyway, they get to host. First time Duke is hosting a ranked team as a ranked team themselves since game day started in 1995. Cooper Flagg, the number one recruit in the country, was at UConn, visiting UConn, and UConn decided to take him to the UConn-Duke football game, which Duke won by a million points, when Flagg is, like, expected to go to Duke. Like, everybody thinks he's going to go to Duke. That seems like a really bad decision. Yeah, it wasn't great, (laughs) Um, but, you know, he doesn't play football, so, like, I don't know. I think sometimes we get a little too into stuff like that, where it's like, I don't know. Did he? Did he have fun? <laughs> I can't. It's a UConn football game. Of course, he didn't have fun. That's, That's not true. the point. That's not why they do that. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Who, who you got in this game? So this is tough. I'm I'm bummed because I'm gonna miss this one. I'm not gonna be able to watch it. Uh, I will be uh, seeing the drive-by truckers instead. But I, I've got Notre Dame here. Um, I think Duke is really good. I do. It just like there's a different there's a different level that I just don't think that Duke is at yet. Can can Mike Elko get them there? Possibly, right? Like, I mean, give it a year or two and, and maybe he can continue to build that up. 
But I just think there's too big a talent gap here. And I'm sorry, like, I'm sure they'll be all fired up and everything. But Wallace Wade, like, even at its best, I don't think is, like, that intimidating of an environment. And the the thing is, is, like, Sam Hartman's been there before, right? Like, he's played there before. This is just a Notre Dame team that has a lot of talent. And and with Hartman leading the way, with Audrey Gastame leading the running game, I just, I don't know. I, I, I just don't think that Riley Leonard and, and the Blue Devils are quite at that point yet. Um, I think they lose a competitive game. Um, I don't think this is a blowout, but I think Notre Dame wins it fairly comfortably. Notre Dame is my top lock of the week at five and a half points. They have one of the best offensive lines in the country. Sam Hartman just played his worst game as a starter for Notre Dame and still has yet to throw an interception. He does not make bad choices. 14 touchdowns, completed 68% of his passes against Ohio State. Yeah, I, I love Notre Dame here. I think you're exactly right. Duke is up and coming, but they do not have the talent to compete with Notre Dame in this game. I do love the under here. Uh, point total is at 51 right now. I see this game as being kind of a dogfight, a little low scoring. So that's that's kind of my confident bet on this game is the under. Last ACC game of the week, Saturday, 8 o'clock on the ACC Network. It is Pitt. Your boy, Phil Jerkovich, no longer there to kick around after he was concussed and knocked out of the game against UNC last week. They're traveling to Lane Stadium to play Virginia Tech. It was really his his best game of the whole season. He was actually playing pretty well against UNC and then got knocked out. And everybody wanted to see Christian Veyer come in. And he was highly recruited. That guy did not have a good game. 7 of 18, 85 yards, 2 picks. The over-under is 42, and I'm going to take the under. I, like, I don't have any faith in Pitt's offense now, and I never have faith in Virginia Tech's offense based on how they're playing. Give me the under. Yeah, Pittsburgh, you know, Jerkovich may still be out. They said he's iffy. Um, he's, uh, so he potentially could play, but it's not as though it looks like they have a ton of talent behind him, as you mentioned. Also, you know, Pitt's starting left tackle just went down with a season-ending injury. So that's their third starting offensive lineman to be out with an injury. Not great when your offense is struggling for the line mm-hmm. to also have some some health issues. That being said, I say this with all the love for my wonderful wife. Uh, the Hokies are bad, and they, they also have a ton of injury you know, stuff going on as well, especially the skill positions. I think that drones at quarterback for them makes them a little bit more exciting, gives a, a, a layer to the offense that Grant Wells doesn't. That being said, I think Pitt wins here kind of no matter who plays. And love the under. The, the The point total could be at like 17, and I'd probably take the under. <laughs> this may be like a 3 nothing win for Pitt, which would cover it. So, uh, yeah, give me Pitt here. <laughs> that is your ACC slate. Not the best slate we've ever seen, but you know what? We take what we get. It's happening. <laughs> it's there. Uh, a few top 25 games that I want to talk about real quick here at the end that I'm most interested in. Uh, first on Friday night, 9 p.m., FS1, Utah is traveling to Oregon State. The Utes played a really low-scoring, bruising game against UCLA. That game was one of the like hardest-to-watch games for me all weekend. That was like a good game. It wasn't a blowout. Yeah. They still don't have Cam Rising back. The team has cleared him, apparently. 
but it's only a matter of his comfort level, and he does not seem to be ready to go back out there. So they may have to play with Nate Johnson again. He had one touchdown pass in the game against UCLA, but then only accumulated 219 total uh, yards of offense. But they did accumulate 352 punt yards. Nice job, Jack Bowmeister. All right. Well done. I think Oregon State's going to win this game. I don't know. I don't like picking against Utah for anything because I've been uh, burned as I was burned this past week with my column. But I don't know. I just don't trust Utah until they get Cam Rising back. And if he is back, he's still going to be dealing with that comfort level of the ACL injury. And so much of his game is being able to scramble, put his head down, get those extra yards. And I think that that just takes some time. Like you can't just come in midseason and like have that be immediate. Yeah, I'm getting pretty tired of saying if Cam Rising plays, I got Utah. So I'm just gonna assume he's not playing. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm done saying it. I'm done thinking about the hypotheticals. My assumption is that this kid's never gonna play again. <laughs> That's just you know, prove me wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I want him to play. I think he's good for the game. He's exciting to watch. Um, that being said, I'm just gonna assume he's not gonna be out there. In which case, I also really like Oregon State here. This is a you know a team we've talked about them a lot. I feel like. They were good last year and returned a ton of talent. And, and I just think that there is a, a dynamic element to their offense that wasn't there in the past to go with a tough defense that, you know, I think this team can win in a lot of different ways, right? They can, they played kind of a slugfest against San Diego State in a 26-9 victory. They obviously lost to Washington State, but showed an ability to play in a kind of shootout right so i think that they can adapt to a lot of different styles of football this probably will be an ugly game with the way utah has been playing so yeah go beefs saturday at noon the fox game again is at colorado this is a 10 a.m local kick i would love there to be a 10 a.m local kick at some point that's like my prime hours everybody else is like just waking <laughs> up but i've been up for like four hours so i'm ready to go I, I could be tailgating, getting the grill going. It would be great. Colorado is a 23-point underdog against USC. USC's offense averaging 55 points a game, but they've also played almost nobody. Like, they have the 116th rated schedule in the country. They were messing around with Arizona State last weekend. It was a one-score game in the fourth quarter. Arizona State was real plucky. I don't know, man. 23 points. This is the game where I feel like Colorado will be able to score and be mm. able to keep up with USC just because USC doesn't have the same defense that Oregon does. I don't think Colorado can stop USC either, but I see this as like 52-35 game with a Colorado cover. Yeah, I'm, I'm into that. I mean, the point total on this one's at 73 and a half. <laughs> That's so I think Vegas Over. is also, yeah, Vegas is also expecting some bombs, not a whole lot of uh, defense to show up in this one and I think that's probably what we'll see you know you go back to the friendly confines of Folsom Field and so you get that sort of home field feeling the environment will be crazy even without game day being there uh, because it's Fox's big thing there'll, there'll be a big environment there anyway and Dion knows how to build that up so I also like Colorado to cover in this one Shador Sanders I mean even in the struggle uh, where you know the offense didn't was not able to move a lot against Oregon. He's still, like, his numbers for the year are still looking really good. He doesn't really turn the ball over. 
which if USC is going to have luck on defense, a lot of it is going to have to do with takeaways. And so I I'd see this as a, a high scoring, lots of passing yards being put up by both these quarterbacks. This is a game that, you know, we still could look at. I'm not going to write Shutter Sanders off in the Heisman conversation quite yet. We could look back at this at the end of the season and see this is a duel between Heisman finalists. I do like USC to win, and I think that your uh, your scoreline there, predicted scoreline there, is probably pretty accurate. Which sideline do you think is going to have more celebrities on it? Oh, Colorado. I don't know. A lot of USC fans. They'll probably yeah, make that but trip. I don't I, know. I think, Color- I think Deion Sanders knows that and is going to make sure that everybody's there. It'll, it'll be fun to watch. They should have a red carpet onto both sidelines. I'd watch that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Saturday at 3.30 on ABC, Texas is hosting Kansas, the plucky 4-0 Kansas Jayhawks, Rock Chalk. This is their second consecutive 4-0 start for the first time since 1915. Nice work, Jayhawks. And uh, as much as I love watching them and Jalen Daniels play, Leipold, he's done a great job building that program out of nothing. Texas is only favored by 17 points. I just feel like Texas is going to blow them out. I'm all in on Texas and how they've played so far this year. Went to Baylor, took care of business. Quinn Yours is great. Jonathan Brooks, the running back, is great. Give me Texas. Yeah, I mean, I like kind of referring to this Kansas team as plucky. I mean, they're 4-0. Cool. I, I don't believe in this. I don't know. I just, I, they're good. I guess like I kind of look at this as similar to Duke, although I'm not quite putting them on Duke's level yet. This is a good team that is better than I think people expect. But at the same time, like I still I've been, you know, saying this from the start, I, I believe in Texas. You know, I think Texas is one of the best teams in the country. You know, they went out there and absolutely took Baylor apart like they were supposed to. They've done nothing but what they were supposed to do, right? They struggled with Wyoming a little bit early. I get it. But then they put that game away. So I've got no reason to doubt Texas here. I like them to cover 17. I think that they are going to, like, especially in Austin. And finally, we've got Saturday, 6 o'clock on ESPN. It is the battle for the Magnolia Bowl, the state flower of both Mississippi and Louisiana where LSU is going to be playing at Ole Miss. LSU favored by two and a half. I don't know. I haven't been that impressed with LSU. One of my preseason picks to be a national championship contender, definitely a playoff contender. They struggled with Arkansas last week, barely got the win. I just feel like they are playing really well offensively, offensively, but they're struggling with containing quarterbacks that are mobile. Like KJ Jefferson was all over the place, rolling out of the pocket. And that's a problem for their defense because they don't have quite as much talent at the corner position and in their secondary. So this game I'm conflicted about. I feel like at, at home, Ole Miss is so much better. I'm going to stick with my priors, though. Stick with LSU because I think they have more talent, but I really don't feel confident about it at all. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, LSU, I was with you. I was very, very high on them going into the season. I really thought this was a national championship contender, and I've been disappointed. And they don't quite look as good as I expected them to be, especially on defense. Um, like you said, struggling with mobile quarterbacks. And Jackson Dart is a pretty mobile quarterback. He's almost leading rusher. And so, you know, I think that they could really struggle here to contain him. And, and the fact that it's down there 
um, in Oxford. Ole Miss is good at home. They're going to be fired up for this game. It's a good opportunity for them to assert themselves on the national stage. Yeah, so so looking ahead at this, you know, LSU favored by, I, I got it at two and a half. I like Ole Miss actually to win this straight up. I think Ole Miss um, is able to defend their home turf. I think they're going to struggle with Jackson Dart. I do see this as a shootout. I, I think the defenses are, are not going to rule the day here just because LSU also has an explosive offense, you know, averaging over 500 yards a game. So I think that, you know, you're going to see a lot of offense in this game, but I do think Ole Miss pulls off the win. As much as people think that Nick Saban is done and that his career is like about to end, Lane Kiffin has to be smarter to know you can't poke the bear. Like leading up to the game against Alabama last week, he was doing some like online trolling. Do you really think that's going to work? Like look at the record. He's now 29 and three against former assistants. What what is that going to get you? Is that going to like is once the game starts, is your team going to be like, man, he trolled him so hard. Love that. I'm going to play better. This doesn't make any sense. It just makes you look stupid. Yeah. I mean, the goal is to get fans fired up, right? If you can't get fired up to play Alabama, man, I don't know. No, I, I understand. I, I I think it is dumb, but it's also just fun. I don't know. I like talking <laughs> so I get it. But yeah, I in that situation, Nick Saban's probably not somebody that you want to start doing that with. So those games we have previewed and circled, some definitely some other games on the schedule that are worth your time. Florida's going to Kentucky. That's kind of a tricky game. Kentucky's been playing well. We have Georgia traveling to Auburn. Auburn did not get the win last weekend against Texas A&M, but gets to host Georgia, one of the few real tests on Georgia's schedule. Tennessee hosting South Carolina. Never know what that could look like. And uh, Alabama going to Stark Vegas take on Mississippi State some some fun kind of lower key games not as much like sizzle not all ranked teams playing each other like last week but some decent games throughout yeah I think we'll get some surprisingly competitive games whereas like this past week we got some games that we thought were going to be really good that turned out to not be very competitive I think we'll kind of get the opposite this week if you want to write into the show you can do so by going to we're sending an email to preferredwalkons at yahoo.com. You can also find us on social media at PWOPod. Getting some good engagement with some people today on Twitter about UVA basketball, which had its first practice today. We're recording on Monday, September 25th. So keep that up. I like chatting best with best team in the country. Isn't yeah, that right? A lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of people not, uh, not loving that number. So we'll see. Let me just say, we'll talk about this on a future episode. We can start talking about some basketball. That number doesn't mean anything. Who cares? I got the receipts for it, though. That's what, that's that's right. what oh, matters. Yeah. It'll, it'll mean something later when you can use it to, to, <laughs> to yell at people for not believing in your team. But right now, like, it's a, come on, man. Who cares? If you think your team's good, great. Be excited. Don't worry about what some jabroni says about where they should be ranked ahead of the season. What else is there? but to worry about what people say online there's there's an actual sport happening right now (laughs) we prefer thinking about basketball oh i i yes i know that (laughs) also real quick you could leave this in or not but one of the funniest things about my experience at scott stadium on friday night was every time just just the wave of people's opinions on brennan armstrong if he did something bad, they'd be like, oh, we're so glad he's gone. And then literally at the end <laughs> of the game, I had multiple people say something to me about, like, can we have Brennan back? Which is unbelievable to me. It's like an ex-girlfriend, man. 
It's like, yeah. I don't need her. I'm better off without her. Oh, my gosh. She looks so pretty in that picture. <laughs> I wish she can throw. She's left-handed, you know. 